Welcome to the Hammer and Quill, a Bonhoeffer House podcast exploring the good, true, and beautiful in the lives and vocations of interesting people. This is episode 17, an interview with retired chief Don Goodman. We have Don here in the studio. We're not in the Bonhoeffer House Worldwide Global Domination Headquarters. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we might be done with, with, the, with the house. Oh. Headquarters. Yeah, I didn't tell you that. You so didn't. here we are. I'm telling you right now on on air. Uh-huh. Here in beautiful Radford at Valley Bible Church, we're in the lobby. We've been traveling a lot. We got the mobile studio rocking and rolling. We're here at the round table in the lobby, and it is good to be together. Yes. No R and D coffee this week, but we do recommend if you're in the Blue Ridge Mountains. In this area, you go and get you some in Roanoke. And we're still open to a sponsorship. Yeah, R&D, if you're listening. Quincy, if you're listening. Really, uh, we're, we're open to... Oh, as a matter of fact, anybody. Yeah, anybody well, who has <laughs> things and money. <laughs> we we are, we would If you've got the stuff, we'd love to be sponsored. <laughs> we'd love to be sponsored. Um, I think that's too broad. Well, but... You're right, but yeah. I mean, especially <laughs> if you have coffee, We're trying to cast food, a broad net. Yeah, yeah, money. Money is probably the top one because you know what's great about money? You can buy stuff. You can buy stuff. Yeah, that and is stuff good. makes you happy. <laughs> so we're happy to be here with our good friend, retired police chief, Don Goodman. And we're going to be talking about, uh, as we do with all of our podcast episodes, we're going we're gonna to be talking about the good, the true, and the beautiful, especially looking through the lens of Philippians 4.8, which says, Finally, brothers, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So much that's happening right now in our cultural moment is uh, not good, true, and beautiful, is uh, malformative, is uh, uh, shaping us away from conformity to the image of God. And we want to take some time and stop and look at the lives and vocations of people serving God in that Philippians 4, 8 kind of way. Now we are, and you know, we're going to pick Don's brain a little bit about practices, about habits, because part of what we want to do is offer to you, our listeners, uh, some best practices, how to break through when you get stuck, uh, how to how to study well, how to think well, how to, how to, how to uh, shape and conform your life in ways that uh, bring God glory and are good. Yeah. And are good. And so we wanted to have our friend Chief. We call him Chief, but his name is Don. We wanted to have Chief on <laughs> because he is a friend of the Bonhoeffer house. He has let us use his cabin Many, many, many times. Yeah. He's driven us up the river and dropped us off so that we could float back down many times. As a matter of fact, he's probably let us use the cabin times he doesn't even know about. <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay, as long as yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, has really, Don is a friend of ours personally, a retired police chief, uh, police officer for his entire vocational career, is currently recently been uh, appointed and installed as an elder at Valley Bible Church, where he and I are colleagues. And so we are, you know, we wanted to have Donald because right now policing is a huge, huge conversation. It's a huge deal in our uh, American culture right now. And yeah. so we thought, well, we know, we know a police officer. Yeah. And so let's get him on here. Let's see what he has to say. Let's pick his brain a little bit. And so, Don, introduce yourself. And here's how we want you to do this. We ask all our guests the same question. We've had quite an interesting variety of answers. So the question is, what would be on the back of your baseball card? 
know what to do with the ball before it's hit to you. Okay. Ooh. Now we're now see Don <laughs> like took the it, motto. Yeah, Don yeah. took it the motto route. Yeah. Along with Reese Bizant. Yeah. Who gave us like three life <laughs> mottos in one episode. <laughs> yep. Motto episode. Motto episode. All right. Well, here's what we want. That's great. So know what to do with the ball before it gets hit to you. Yeah. That's Why? excellent. Why? Why well, it, why you, do you, do do you want the whole story or just, I mean. I, I mean, w- is this a baseball story? It's a baseball oh, story. Yeah, oh, yeah, we definitely want it. Come on. All right, so I, I was a little kid in McLean, Virginia. I was probably like 10 or 11, and I was playing for a team called Mr. Max Flyers. And if that's not a cool name, I Mr. don't. Mr. Max Flyers. Yeah. Okay. And so. Um, <laughs> was, he, was, was he the sponsor? I don't know who Mr. Max was. <laughs> okay. I was like 10 okay. or 11, Jesse. Okay. That was a few decades ago. So anyhow, um, that was back in the day where you had a Little League parade down Main Street when oh, the season yeah. started. Oh, it was, yeah. it was you like. You throw candy from tr- oh, yeah. truck beds. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. It was all I good. I do that too. All that's good. Awesome. I would so keep I wa- half the candy. Yeah. So I, um, <laughs> you, you guys know that I'm a big strapping man, a knot. Yeah, Don, Don and, is not a, not a very large person. But I wanted to play shortstop, mm. okay, because I just— you, you're, you really strike me more as a second baseman. Well, that's what Coach said. Mm. And he said— Coach was probably right. And, and, and I'm like, but Coach, I want to play short. I want to play short. Come on, Coach, let me play. You know, and, and Jesse, you have kids that are— up. Put me in, Coach. Yeah, I'm ready to play. I'm ready to play. So— um, <laughs> Today— so I remember, and I actually use this. Field. I use this story, and I use this line uh, right now. I travel around, and I I train first responders, and um, and and I use this line on them uh, because oh, my coach's name, by the way, his last name was Draculich. No way! <laughs> wow. So so imagine being like eleven, and your coach's name is basically Dracula. And he won't let you play shortstop. And He's sucking the life out of all this. <laughs> and so it's not I, fun, mom. And so I say, uh, oh, I, I just keep bugging him. And he goes, Goodman, if you're ever going to play shortstop, you need to know what to do with the ball before it's hit to you. And so I've kind of like it, it's one of those things that that as I train people now, I, I tell them, hey guys, you gotta you gotta be thinking and training and knowing what to do with the ball, knowing knowing how to respond to something before it happens. And mm. and so, um, you thank know, you, I, thank you to Coach Dracula. Yeah, when you you're know. alive for fourteen hundred years, <laughs> you pick up some some wise sayings along yeah. the way. So that's why that's why I, I don't know that just popped in my head, you know. Um, I wish I wish the back of my baseball card would have like my batting average was three sixty five, mm. you know. But it would. you know when we when I was growing up, I played little league baseball a lot, and uh, we had um, one of my friends' dad. He's now a member of our church here at Valley Bible Church, and he was an accountant, still is, and he kept detailed statistics of every single player on our team. Like he How old he you? was uh, from you know ten years old to. 14 or 15. Awesome. He was like doing advancement. He was, he was, he was Moneyball before Moneyball. <laughs> yeah. He was doing the analytics. He, on he wasted guys. his talent on little league <laughs> baseball though, but it was basically just so his sons could know the batting average. And, uh, but he figured we'd all want to know. And he was right. As a matter of fact, every week we would get a stapled printout that had detailed updated statistics, pitching and batting what an, and what an fielding. Epic. He kept track of errors. So he had your fielding percentage. Oh yeah, as well. I knew my fielding percentage growing up. What, wow. an, what an epic dad! Yeah. yeah, shout out to John Edwards. There you go, John Edwards. Now, Don, Don, here's what we really want to know: is right. uh, just tell us about yourself, family life, just 
give us a little intro to who you are. All right. So what you need to know about me is I'm the fourth of five children. I grew up in the D.C. suburb of McLean. I, uh, my father worked. My mother didn't. Not a particularly uh, unfaithful home, but not a church-going home. I ended up coming to Radford University as a wayward 18-year-old. Uh, Me too. Yeah, and not, you know, with really nothing on my mind except, hey, I, got, I have to do something. And so I ended up at RU. And, and it's really cool how God gives you perspective later, and you can look back and go, wow, thank you, God. I can see your hand at work. And, you know, I can see, um, well, I, God gave me a wife at Radford. Um, so I'm, I've been married. Oh, boy. Um, you got this. Hold on. What year is it? Well, Anne is 39. So. <laughs> so I married her when she was four. No, don't. No, that's worse. <laughs> yeah, that is bad. That's we've been, worse. <laughs> we've, been married, we've been married for 35 years, uh, and we have two children, Jenny and Michael, uh, who are married. Jenny's married to Cole, and Michael's married to Haley. And Jenny and Cole have uh, our first and only grandchild, Myers, who's mm. two and a half, and she is amazing. Uh, so she's it, one of, she's one of my daughter's best friends. She yes. calls her my was my was. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, that's where I am now, but, but to get to there, um, I, you know, I did my four years in a semester at Radford. Yeah, we needed, all, we all do. Yeah. I needed that extra semester to make up for poor decisions. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I immediately got hired by the Blacksburg police department in the fall of 1984. Mm, and, mm. and so... Good, let's chase that down. You know, yeah. you grew up in McLean. I was once arrested in McLean. Uh, yeah, I've heard this story. But Is that the 7-Eleven? No, no, that's a different one. That's I, a different story. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing is, I wasn't really a bad kid. It was just trouble found me. Yeah. <laughs> I should have been arrested in McLean. Trouble found me. I was in the wrong neighborhood with a BB gun. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to move on. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so tell us a little bit about how you knew you were called to be a law enforcement officer. Tell us about your journey into this vocation of law enforcement. Well, well I'll say this in, in that I didn't find the Lord until I was in my 30s, till I was like 31 and a half, basically. And so I didn't, I, I didn't know that I had been called until then. Mm. I did know that I had a deep desire to serve and to help people. And, and so I didn't really care what community it was in. I needed a job when I was getting out of college. And I thought, okay, Blacksburg's a cool place. I'll, I'll work there. I'll work there for a few years. I'll go on to bigger and better things. Uh, Ann and I got married, set some roots down. She had a good job. We started raising a family. And, uh, and then the Lord kind of grabbed me. Mm. And, and that was a series of events uh, with people that I worked with, quite frankly, uh, other Christians that, that, uh, and I'll, and I'll, I'll just, I, one of my friends, Gary, just had, we were, we were actually on a drug task force then and we were riding around with long hair, uh, you know, buying drugs. And he, uh, we were going to, we were going to do a drug deal and we were riding down, uh, Christiansburg mountain. Okay. Out, and he goes, so Donnie, do you know Jesus? Hmm. And I went, I don't know what you mean. And, 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 that, and Ann and I had been going to a church, and, but it sent me to my Bible. Mm. Mm. 
And, and one thing led to another. I had, uh, I, I won't say that I had like this, well, yeah, I probably did have kind of more of a less, uh, an experience where the God just kind of grabbed me and said, uh, you need, you know, uh, you're going to follow me. And, and I said, yes, sir. And, mm. and, and he, um, he led me down this path where when I thought I was, I was doing things for the right reason at work and trying to do good things, man, when, when God says, it puts his spin on that, it changes everything. Mm. And, and there was, uh, you know, I, I had to grow, so there was some changing that needed to occur. But there was, um, there was just a difference in how I was going to do my job. And yeah, talk about that. What was the difference as you look back at your your pre-conversion career and then your post-conversion career? Uh, uh, what were the, what were some of the differences? Whether they be subtle, maybe uh, posture shifts, um, dispositional shifts, or or bigger ones. So I'll, I'll say that that prior to that, most of what I did was to fulfill my own need of doing good or advancing my own career kind of after that it became well how can I serve my fellow man in the best way possible how can I solve problems for people in a way that honors my God and uh, and just and, and elevates who he is mm. and 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 there's not a lot I mean in police work most things happen I mean people call you on their worst day they don't call you for their birthday party and it's a bad day and you walk into a situation and you have to solve it and and it's easy to solve it and be detached and compartmentalize things and to do those things and it's and in some ways even even after my conversion you know you still have to compartmentalize things just to kind of work through things but um but after that, there was um, just this deep sense of trying to help. Even, a, I mean, just this huge deep sense. And, and a lot of things grieved me uh, much more than, than they did before. Just mm. seeing, you know, just seeing, I don't know, violence and despair and poverty and uh, addiction and mental illness and, you know, hurt children and all of those things that, that yeah, that, that obviously just grieved the Lord. So. Mm. So, so in, in your career, you moved from, you served in two different police departments yes. pri- primarily, correct? Correct. And you did move on to bigger and better things because you, you came to Radford. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I did. Like, <laughs> Which is my favorite. I, I love Radford. Yeah. Radford. Radford was where I lived and where we were raising our family when I was working in Blacksburg. So. Right, and if, you, if you're listening and you're not familiar with the New River Valley, no one in Blacksburg would agree with the statement I just made. Yeah, there's a there's a bit of a rivalry. <laughs> no, there's not, it's not really no. a rivalry. <laughs> no. uh, rivalry requi- requires that yeah, there's equal, equal footing. Equal footing. Yeah. That's like, right. We're uh, we're a small town. We're is, a very small. I mean, you would, know. Would you compare it to? Um, uh, yes, Pawnee Park, Parks and Rec. Yeah, it's Pawnee. <laughs> we're Pawnee. And, and Blacksburg is. Um, Blacksburg is the bad guys. What's oh, what's the shoot. other side? Eagleton. Uh, Eagleton. Oh, Eagleton. Eagleton. Yes, that's right. So you came to Pawnee, where, where so bigger and better things. You know, in your in your experience in those two police departments over the course of how many years? Oh boy, thirty four years and four months. Thirty four years and four months. 
Uh, did you did you experience a majority of officers who who uh, were coming from more of the position that you're describing? It, maybe an eagerness to serve the community, a, a heartbrokenness when um, encountering you know people in their worst day, or or did you experience a lot more of a hardness, uh, disconnectedness, maybe even. Um, you, you know, talk about that a little bit as far as your yeah, experience so, goes. So most of the officers that I've worked with, the vast majority of them are there to help and, and there to serve. Uh, does hardness develop? Yeah, it does. And, and I, you have to caution, I caution officers, guard your soul, understand what your priorities are. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I've been on plenty of calls, either as the chief or in one of my various roles in Blacksburg, where you roll up on the scene of something really bad, and uh, they're, for lack of a better term, big hardened men, or 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 experienced hardened women who are crying because of what's going on, mm-hmm. and and they may not, you know, I don't know what everybody's uh, faith status is. But, but there's that genuine humanness there that, you know, you, it, it's very hard on some of these things to look at it and, and, and compartmentalize it and not let it affect you. And, and you know, one of the things I've told my kids here recently that I tried to come home whole mm. and uh, not disfigured by violence. And, and I don't mean physically disfigured, but I mean emotionally disfigured because there's a lot of that that goes on. Mm. We're going to get into in a lot of ways, how to think Christianly about policing. Okay. Um, and and, and uh, for you listeners, we want to kind of offer the same, um, I don't know, disclaimer that um, we don't have all the answers, yeah. but we are wanting to, to have this conversation to really think about how we can move forward as Christians, even how the church should be thinking about policing, uh, local communities, uh, common good work with different organizations, both organizations of the state and organizations that are private organizations, all towards the common good. And we want to we want to dive into that. Before we do, though, do you have any? Do you have any? Do you have a funny story from your policing career that is? And here's the thing: is even if it's not appropriate, I can always cut it out later. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say. So I, <laughs> I, I went. To a seminar somewhere where somebody told me that if you're ever being recorded, don't say anything that you don't <laughs> want your mother to hear. <laughs> I, I can almost guarantee you that uh, that's not going to be a problem here. <laughs> <laughs> they're, uh, they're very... Uh, all right, I'll tell one quick college kid story. Yes. I did give a Cupid, a, a boy dressed as Cupid, a ride home one Halloween because he had lost his shoes. I mean, you know. Oh, we can we can keep that. We can keep that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're if you're listening if you're listening in, we've edited the heart the one we had to edit out. <laughs> but we'll leave the Cupid in. You gave a boy dressed as Cupid a ride home, shoeless Cupid. Shoeless. Although Cupid. to be fair, Cupid was shoeless, yeah. right? I mean, I can't ever well, remember any. I don't know Cupid anything with shoes. Yeah. Fat baby. Fat baby Cupid. Cupid. Yeah, he well, was, that, that's who he's dressed as. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I, you know, I, uh, I was at many of those parties before your time, though. I think I've seen your name. <laughs> no, you didn't. Because, <laughs> because the thing is, is that uh, I was faster than, than the police officers. <laughs> but actually, the mo- most important thing was I was faster than the other drunk people. That's all you party. have to be. Yeah. I ran so many times. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not proud of, I'm proud of my speed and yeah. agility. And I'm proud that um, I was usually, I was not as drunk as the other people, which is where I was able to continue to maintain speed and agility. Yeah. Um, but many, many times. The I can tell. Cops are here. <laughs> and I we just go running like, like when the light turns on and all the cockroaches go. <laughs> yeah. I can tell you that there's really not much benefit. And I'm giving away a trade secret here in police chasing drunk yeah, young people. I, well, I, yeah, I kind of intuitively felt that. Like, yeah. these guys aren't going to chase me very far. <laughs> there's, no, there's, there's like a hundred other people they here. They don't really care. No. <laughs> uh, there have been they times... They just want us to stop doing this. There have been there. times that I've stomped my feet loud like I'm running after people. <laughs> that's, that's, I do that with my kids sometimes. Yeah. yeah that's you don't want good. dad to get down there. I'm, com- I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot... There, there's... So there's a, there's Cupid, a lot of little ride home. Uh, anything yeah. else we're going to keep off air. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about. But that was a good story, even though you're going to edit. <laughs> you absolutely have to edit it. Yeah. Yeah. We're sorry we if you're listening at ca- home. We don't have the technical technological capabilities to. Oh, I thought you were going to hit a button or something. I don't have a, don't like have a, a, a beep button. I just beep. would have had to say. Yeah. Beep. Michael, can you, can you <laughs> beep over top of him? <laughs> You could have just not said the word so loud. <laughs> it wouldn't have. It, that's why it was funny. That's true. That made the story. Okay. Well, if you want to know that story, you're going to have to ask Don. Yeah, that's In right. In real life, you're going to have to talk to him and find out what that story was. So before you before you go there, uh, yeah, I'm going there. Yeah. Well, I just would love to circle back to you know you you mentioned to your kids trying trying your best to come home whole, uh-huh. emotionally whole, spiritually whole. Um, I'm just curious if you, if, if you have ways that you went about that or practices that you used to, uh, help you, um, um, well, I tried to spend time in the word. I, 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 that was important and spend time in prayer and outside of that, spend time in my family and seeking, seeking the things that the Lord had given me that were good that that was that was huge um you know just briefly without going into a lot of detail one of uh, i was one of the first responders there at on the campus of virginia tech after april 16 or on april 16 and uh you know i i, I mean i just you know i saw horrors that i never thought i'd see and i dealt with even though i trained for those and and i saw men and women who i worked with do tremendously courageous things and trying to save lives and at the end of the day 32 people still died yeah and so there was a lot of weeping that went along with that there was a lot of weeping in my own soul and and i can tell you for a period of time and i can't remember how long but i would drive to i would be driving to work from radford to blacksburg and i would spend time in prayer and don't worry i didn't close my eyes while i was driving but um (laughs) You can pray with eyes open. Yeah, so I was praying with my eyes open as I was driving, and generally when I would hit the little hamlet of Price's Fork, I would just start to weep. Mm. And uh, and that went on for some for a period of time. And uh, you know, there's still times that you know that 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 happens. And I I used to kind of I don't know try to push it down. I don't try to push it down too much anymore. I think it's important. I'm weeping because I think, you know, God's heart's broken even more than mine over that. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so in trying to come home whole, you know, I, I, I tried to be really honest with, with my family about how I was feeling. 
Yeah. If I needed space, I'd say, hey, give me a little space here. Uh, Anne learned over the years how to see that, even before I did sometimes. You know, and I have to just say that, uh, you know, yeah, I did some challenging things in my career and had to do some things, but the families of police officers go through it every bit as much, and if not more, uh, than, than the actual officer, because they're the ones that's sitting there that are that are just, you know, they have to live with whatever aftermath comes home. So, yeah. Um, so I love my wife a lot for that. Yeah. Good, good. Thank you for sharing that. I want to I wanna t- turn us for the next little while to talk some about policing in general, uh, thinking Christianly about policing. I'm actually going to introduce uh, uh, something from a book called Public Faith in Action. We'll uh, include it in the show notes. It's a book by Miroslav Volf and Ryan McAnally. Linz. I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, somehow I know how to pronounce Miroslav Volf better. I feel like McAnally. See, you just blew it. Yeah, it's much, it's much harder. Okay, okay, oh. thank you. Yeah. We're, I don't have then, to pronounce their names, Then right? we're in agreement. They, oh. they wrote a book together. These are some Yale guys, some Yale, Yale University Christian smart guys. Smart guys. Uh, and, and this is a book about how to think carefully, engage wisely, and vote with integrity. Uh, came out maybe five or six years ago. I don't know anybody talking about this book, but I found it very helpful. So I want to highlight that there there are a ton of tiny little chapters, little four or five page chapters that address uh, a lot of the different things like policing, justice, um, work, vocation, that sort of thing that all have to do with Christian engagement in the common good of a society. Mm. On their chapter, their chapter on policing, I wanted to highlight the five imperatives that they say should shape Christian engagement with the complex issues surrounding policing. So I'm just going to run through this as if I'm, I'm defending it, and then I'd love, Don, for you to interact with, okay. uh, with, their, with their thoughts here. Number one, seek peace. Uh, they talk about how uh, peace is more than just the absence of violence, but a shalom, and the Hebrew way of thinking about peace is the flourishing and the prosperity of a people, of a society. So seek peace. The police should should involve seeking the peace of their of their community. So, so are we doing these one at a time? No, let me get through okay. them all. Let me get through them all. Uh, number two, defend the poor. I thought this was an interesting one. Isaiah 30, 18 says, the Lord is a God of justice. Uh, Amos 5, 15 says that uh, he commands us to establish justice in the, in the gate. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read uh, this paragraph because okay. I think it's really good. Yeah. When we pursue justice, we move with the grain of a world created and loved by the one true and just God. Among the defining features of a divine justice and its human echoes is an unyielding insistence on treating the poor rightly. To seek justice is to counter the tendencies of laws, legal judgments, and law enforcement to treat the poor and weak more harshly than the rich and powerful. Mm -hmm. Uh, Isaiah says of the Messiah, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. That's Isaiah 11.4. Psalm 72.4 says that praise that the king will defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the needy and crush the oppressor. And so we should, we should, we should be pushing for a policing that defends the poor. That's number two. Number three, don't act out of fear uh, that Christians should resist fear-based arguments and, and, policing, and policies about policing that exaggerate threats, turn a blind eye to justice, and undermine peace. Number four, seek the truth and tell it. We must seek the truth. We must speak the truth in love. We don't pretend 
Uh, we don't pretend. So, and then number five, love your neighbors. Good policing re- requires love of neighbor. Uh, now he, he they go on to talk about how difficult this is, right? Mm-hmm. Part part of the difficulty of policing is that the coercive power we grant the police is subject to profound distortions. The police aren't always right. The laws aren't always right, which we've seen in maybe the Jim Crow South. Uh, this may be obvious, but it's important to emphasize. Uh, and another thing that they talk about is how uh, uh, we entrust the police with an extraordinarily difficult, in some ways even impossible, task. Because every time they intervene, there's a possibility they've misread the situation, that they'll use excessive force, that their interventions will escalate, that they, you know, there's just so much uh, pressure put on yeah. to the police. Now, let me end with the five goals that they highlight. And then we'll, and then okay. I'll, I'll ask you to, you don't have to engage with all, all these things. I just, just general ideas as you're listening here, Don, uh, five goals, which we should aim. Number one, police officers ought to be guardians of citizens lives, not warriors. So, uh, that this is where they're talking about police weaponry, police, uh, and, and I'd love to have you engage with this, yeah, especially with your this. experience in, on April 16th. Um, Number two, police should be trained in skills for protecting the community without using coercion. So can you persuade? Can you um, serve uh, the mentally ill and, and homeless and so on? Number three, the law must avoid putting the police in a position of opposition to the community's population. Uh, so we, the law needs to, needs to um, you know... Uh, the war on drugs maybe then pits the police against the community itself. Number four, public policy and police department culture should provide needed support for officers without giving blanket protection to officers who break the law or violate proper procedures. And then number five, an independent office should be responsible for judging when officers have used force illicitly. Or, or uh, I'll just, let's talk about the very last one. Yeah. The, the use... Th- the use, use of, of force, and, and let's just let's make it the use of deadly force. Okay. How about okay, because that's the one that that's the big one. That's what everybody's seeing. And yes, when uh, you have an agency investigating itself in the use of deadly force, what do people think? I mean, I'm asking you guys. What 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 would you think? I would think this is not a fair and unbalanced, unbalanced uh, or uh, investigation. Yeah, unbiased yeah. investigation and. The officers are not going to be punished. So in order to start to get past that and to be above board, I think it's really important when an officer has to exercise that uh, ultimate use of force that an external agency investigates. I just think that's hugely important. It lends some credibility and hopefully builds a little trust. Uh, So I'll go back to... um, Gee whiz, there's so much there, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> I also, to be fair, I did give you this book in advance. You yeah, just, but I, but my son you were separated got, from it because of COVID, COVID uh, quarantining. So, so anyhow, let me um, let me talk about w- the separation of warrior from yes. What is uh, it? Warrior from defender, guardian, guardian. from guardian. guardian. Yeah. So I think we're playing semantics to some some degree. I think an officer has to be able to assume all those roles in our society today. Would you have not want, wanted warrior-minded officers on 9-11 running into buildings that were getting ready to crumble? Mm. I, I say, or would you not have wanted warrior-minded officers at any of the mass 
killing events that we've had that have been able to help end those and save innocent lives. That on, that's on one hand. However, the vast majority of what law enforcement officers do is not that. Right. The vast majority of what law enforcement officers do is serve their community in ways that are so totally not non-law enforcement. One of the things that we used to do uh, here in Radford at McCarg is that we would open car doors at, for the kids at school in the morning. Mm. It was so much fun. We were just trying to be helpers. We knew the, we, we had a traffic situation there, and we knew that if we could get cars through there, we'd alleviate some of the traffic. So in order to do that, we wanted just, you know, and it also helps to build relationships. And, and when you have kindergartners that'll, that'll hug your leg and leave a little, you know, runny nose mark on your, on your uniform <laughs> pants or something, it makes for a good day. And yeah, and those kindergartners are going to be the adults of the next generation. Yeah. And how they, how they uh, interact with police officers when they're 7, 8, 9, 10, and how their family does makes a difference to the actual local community. Absolutely. And, and so, so that leads me to the whole guardianship of the poor. How mm. about? I, I, think, I think it's really hard when you when you're dealing in generational poverty over and over and over and you expect the police to solve those problems it, that's not the problem the police aren't designed we're not trained we do, we're designed we only have the tools that we have mm-hmm. however a society that does not protect the weakest in it i think is doomed to failure and so I, i'm a big proponent of treating or trying to solve those problems, that we should be problem solvers. And if, and, and if, that, if solving the problem requires the police to make an arrest, then that's, you know, that's what has to happen. Yeah. But there's other ways to solve problems too. So I, I think how we, you know, can we extend other resources to people in those marginalized groups uh, or the ones that are just, you know, just hurting for whatever reason? I, I've seen multiple times over my career officers pick up somebody who's in who needs help and buy them a meal yeah and try to get them at least at least moving forward in that direction so you know i mean there's and i'm not trying to glorify anything like that it's just what i've seen yeah you know so yeah in some ways defend the poor uh biblically from a christian perspective can be summarized by uh not showing the or not giving into the sin of partiality and so, um, so it's, it, what these guys are advocating for is more about uh, policing practices that don't favor the well-off and the powerful. Uh, uh, where, where do your officers patrol, right? Are they only patrolling the poor neighborhoods? In part because maybe they know uh, if an arrest we make here isn't going to be thrown out of court because they're not going to, you know, uh, be able to fight the charges that are going to be, that they're going to have. I'm, I'm just... Yeah, no, and, and I think... Fortunate, I'm. I've been fortunate where I serve that the the distinction between poor neighborhood and uh, more affluent neighborhood isn't as great. No, yes, so, it's it's here, but small town alleviates quite a bit of this. Yeah, so you know, Jesse, I don't know. You know, very seldom are you ever going to see a police officer on your street. There's no reason for a police officer to be on your street. I don't think. 
I'm not confessing anything right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's only four. There's only three houses on our street. Yeah, yeah. so there wouldn't be a reason yeah. for them to be there. Although, although I did get, uh, I did have a police officer stop at my house once and close my garage door in the middle of the night because it was open and the light was on and it looked like it was an invitation for someone to steal something. Mm. Well, that I would have knocked on your front door probably. I. I that would be a little scary if somebody was shutting my garage door. I'm glad. I'm glad they provided that little bit of extra service. So, so, uh, so I, yeah, they need to be in air, in areas where there's crime. So, how do you, um, if if the area where there's crime is uh, disproportionately poor, but yet there's crime there, are we going to say that we don't want police officers there? No, I think we're going to say that we probably do, but I think the challenge is keeping keeping those officers focused on. Uh, compassion and empathy and community building and mm-hmm. working with those people in those environments mm. that that's because they have their own policing needs and they'll tell you what they are. All you have to do is ask. Mm. So, so getting out of your car, being approachable, smiling. Uh, we all like really cool sunglasses, but maybe, you know, flipping them up on your head so people can see your eyes. And in the day, uh, now we're in the uh, days of, um, covid masks so that's another way that you really just can't mm, yeah. you know um you know it, it depersonalizes things so being personal with people I, I i've always discovered that across um class and in socioeconomic things that that we all really have the same kind of you know we have the same wants and desires for our families and w- when you see that it's it's much easier to serve how how closely in your experience did um, your department work with um, like community service and 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 different yeah just different resources that were available in the community? Um, there's they work together. Uh, again, I think most of our I hear you people going to think I'm asking for money or, <laughs> or or wanting stuff you know wanting us wanting more government i'm i'm kind of a less government guy but at least personally but um some of these social service agencies are woefully understaffed and underfunded and turn over people a lot just like police departments and and so that makes uh coordinated effort hard i, I think there's always room to improve coordination in that I think one of the greatest relationships that, that we had was being able to uh, interact in the school setting and see some things from that perspective where officers could help families then. But again, I I wonder, see, part of me now retired wonders, are we asking, is this, is are we asking too much of our police officers in that? In that? Is that something that we want them to do? If the community says yes, then, then by all, by all means, but in this era now where kind of everything is being kind of put under the microscope, I think what you're going to see as the years progress is that you're going to see a slight mission shift in what police do. I hope it's more towards working in the community. So that's at least my thought there. That's good. You know, uh, previous guest twice we've had Charles Wilson on. Charles is planting a church in uh, northwest Roanoke, uh, off uh, in that kind of Melrose Avenue, Melrose uh, Orange Avenue area. He's an Eagles fan. Yeah, we don't. We yeah. try not to bring that up. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, and uh, and we we've talked some. You know, the police chief now in Roanoke City. Yeah, 
is Sam Roman. Sam Roman, I know Sam. And uh, they're doing, uh, you know, so they're, they're working hard to be in the community in ways other than just looking for arrests, Absolutely. right? So they're, you know, at the basketball courts, hanging out, playing basketball. They're serving in different ways in the community. And I think you've, you've kind of hit on that, that that's so important, especially when we're thinking about seeking the shalom or the mm-hmm. flourishing of a community. You can't seek the flourishing of the community unless you're, you're proactively involved with neighbors. You can't love your neighbor unless you know your neighbor, unless they could see your face. Uh, and defending the poor ultimately involves, um, uh, knowing the poor and, uh, and, uh, even your, your disposition and posture when you're in a neighborhood that you're, you're, you're policing. And so, uh, anything else you want to engage with here from, uh, I talked about the warrior stuff. I talked about the poor. What else was in there? I mean, I can talk about it all, but I don't know what you want me to talk about. (laughs) This is your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) What about the law must avoid putting the police in a position of opposition to the community's so, population? So you want to talk about Let's that? Let's talk you, about public and police, the, re, the relationship between the public and the police. Well, that's funny you mentioned that. So Sir Robert Peel in 1829. Most uh, of us know who that is, but for the, for the <laughs> few people who don't know who that is. He was, he, Robert Peel set up basically the first... Um, ethical standards for police, and I, if, it might take me a minute, but I'm just going to read through them. And he he was uh, well, he was London. He was London. the Metropolitan Police in London. Yes. Maybe like the Secretary of whatever that is. Yeah, I don't know what they call him. All right, yeah. Well, you have the floor. This is our podcast, but you're our guest, and so you. Uh, I'm, you, I'm not going to read all of it, but okay. you can go find Peel's Principles of Law Enforcement. We will post it in the show notes. Yeah, and it's from 1829, and it's really important that that. See, this, the, the problems that we're facing right now, I think when we look at it, it we can look at it that, hey, these are, these are human problems that, are, that, yes, we need to be aware and we need to work on them, but we've been working on them for a long time. So maybe, you know, maybe we need to be better communicators and better listeners and, and have more empathy and, and work for shalom and all of those things. But I think in what Peel was trying to set up here, I think that's exactly what he was trying to do. So he says, the basic mission for which police exist is to prevent crime and disorder as an alternative to the repression of crime and disorder by military force and severity of legal punishment. Hmm. Now, if we go back to what old Miroslav was writing in there, I think he, you know, I, I think that first principle of what Sir, Sir Robert Peel is saying here uh, goes right along with mm-hmm. what, what the, that other book is saying. The ability of the police to perform their, their, I'm sorry, I didn't bring my cheater glasses, their duties is dependent upon public approval of police existence, mm. actions, behavior, and ability of the police to secure and maintain, and here's really what's really important here, public respect. See, I, I believe the police expect a certain behavior out of the police. They expect the police to take care of business. And, and, I, and I've used this example quite a bit. If you're driving down the road, Jesse, and let's say that you're, um, I don't know, you're driving down West Main Street and somebody comes off one of the side streets and doesn't pay any attention to the stop sign and pulls out in front of you and there's not a police officer there, what do you say? I pray for them. 
Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> For their destruction. <laughs> but but what, what we generally say is, how come there's never a police officer when I need one, mm. right? But then, Jesse, if you're going 47 miles an hour in front of the food line at that flashing sign. I like to go fast so I can see my number. <laughs> It's like Michael Scott in the office when he's when he's running and the yeah. car goes right. Oh yeah, to him. Right. that's a great he episode. Hits Thirty-one on the. <laughs> yes, thirty-one. And anyhow, and you see that, and you get pulled over, you go, "Why is why, why is are there always cops? Yeah, everywhere? why are there? <laughs> so so you can't have it both ways. But that public respect comes from the fact that the police officers do their job fairly and impartially. They treat people decently. So anyhow, um, let me. Let me read one or two more of these. The police at all times should maintain a relationship with the public that gives reality to the historic tradition that the police are the public and the public are the police. The police are the only members of the public who are paid to give full-time attention to duties which are incumbent on every citizen in the intent of the community welfare. And then I'll, I'll read his ninth point, and then we'll kind of move on. The test of police efficiency, and I think this is really important. Listen to this. The test of police efficiency is the absence of crime and disorder, not the visible evidence of police action in dealing with them. Hmm. So I think... I think what you want in your community is the absence of crime and disorder. And if the police are doing their job in the right way, it's not going to be so violent and so visible that you're going to be going, oh my gosh, what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, the, uh, the breakdown in trust between the public and the police and the breakdown maybe in policing where there is one is... Uh, symptomatic of the breakdown in our society and in the way that we uh, live together and uh, work together for the good of our community. And so, uh, and so, in, you know, in a lot of ways, as we think about a Christian view of policing, it needs to be incorporated in a Christian view of uh, polis, of the people, of the common good of a, of a particular local mm-hmm. reality where we live. Even a Christian view of conflict mm. like yeah that that yeah, not not only is there physical violence that's prevalent in our in our society but and there's a lot of verbal violence there's a lot of uh unhealthy disagreement mm. yeah i'll agree I, and and I, that'll kind of lead me to a comment that i think it's important when you uh, when you mess up or sin or whatever we want to call it, if if the police mess up, it's important for the police, in order to generate trust, to be able to say, "Hey, this happened. This isn't what we wanted to happen. This is what we're doing to correct it," and, and that there's there there's some openness there. I, and I'm so glad that you said that because I think there's. Uh, there's a difference between throwing somebody under the bus as a kind of scapegoat, but there's also a, a really a much longer and challenging um, reality of 
the lack of confession, right? The lack mm-hmm. of admittance of, of error, the lack of accountability. And so, but in any relationship, so let's take this offline from policing. Sure. In any relationship, both institutionally or personally, if there's no confession of sin, if there's no, uh, if there's no willingness to say, man, I was wrong, then we can't, it's hard to have a relationship with someone who always thinks they're right, right? And, and if yeah. they are wrong, puts up fists instead of opening up hands to, to have a conversation. And one of the hardest parts in that in policing is that officers are required to make split-second decisions yeah. based off limited information, often in the dark, uh, often in a heated uh, situation. Often with... Uh, Maybe some mental um, uh, 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 fitness that's that's being challenged because of the job sure. realities. Often with lack of sleep, so, yeah, fatigue. There, there's so we're asking. I, I do think we're asking men and women in this profession today to do things. Well, they, they just have a really they have a really heavy lift to do it right. And thank goodness, as imperfect. And, and as much room for improvement as, as there is, thank goodness for the most part, they strive to do it the right way. Can you talk a little bit about training? Here, and here's yeah. why. Let me draw the link here. You, you mentioned uh, Sir Robert Peel. Mm-hmm. And as you've read that, and, and we read them offline before, before recording, uh, part of me was thinking like, oh, man, well, w- w- why, why aren't the police in Minneapolis living by Peel's policing ideals here? Right, like, how could George Floyd happen? Is there a lack of training? Are these are these officers being put into the into a position where uh, they they're they're not trained in how they ought to think about their job and how they ought to think about the public that they're serving? Uh, like, so so how important do you think? And I think we even had a conversation offline, Don, where you mentioned because uh, we we were talking about George Floyd in particular, and you mentioned how you don't know anyone anywhere in the police world that's teaching what happened there. Yeah, huh. and so and so, how important is training in good policing? I mean, training is huge, and, and that we could do a whole podcast on training. All I'll say is that training varies so much f- from state to state, and even within the state, that it's hard for people to think they're getting consistent police service across the United States based on training, that's just not happening. Mm. So, uh, but, but I'll go to, you know, Peel's, Peel's stuff is an ethos. Okay. That it's an ethical standard for policing and how often, and I'll just say this, how often is that ethical standard demonstrated by not the rank, it was certainly by the rank and file that are doing the job, but by the people in the higher ranks. How often are they putting their feet on the ground in those communities, watching officers interact, interacting with the communities mm. to see that those ethical standards that should be upheld? Uh, that's, I, I think, that's now being a small town police chief. You know, I'd I'd like to think I was fairly approachable, and people would bring mm-hmm. things to me. And I'm also not naive enough to know that people are going to bring things to me. So you have to get out. You have to talk to people. You have to uh, ask hard questions, and you have to be able uh, to take the criticism and, and to look at it honestly and go, "Wow, if this person who I've known for 25 years tells me that this is an attitude." 
then maybe I need to look really hard at it. And did that happen to you? Oh, I mean, those things have happened over the years, yeah. Mm. So what you're saying is, what I'm hearing is there's a crisis in leadership. So it's not just about uh, it's not just about training. We have a we have a leadership vacuum. Well, I think I'm not hearing you call out your 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 other police chiefs. No, That's no, not no, what no, I'm no, saying. No. I, my my contemporaries here, I would yeah, they're they're you speak very highly of them. They're wonderful men and women. Uh, I think when you look across just the broad spectrum that we see today, I think there's a lack of ethical leadership. I think you can, I mean, mm. we can all just point to whatever um, selfish behavior we want to, we want to point to. I, I'm not trying, I'm not going to be political, but I, it's just what it is. Mm. That seems, we, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I just, I just am coming back to your, your comment about, I guess, a, a lack of standardized uh-huh training yeah can we can we vote you into some position where you <laughs> are like the federal czar of police training i'm retired i will be the federal czar of fly fishing mm. <laughs> that that that's kind of a little bit mind-blowing to me that there's not so each state has its own standards virginia has really good standards okay they're 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 very well thought out they're very meticulous uh, i want to say the i don't remember police academies about 23 weeks something like that and then somebody comes out and they have to do at least eight weeks of field training oftentimes double that so really almost a whole year that whole first year they're in training but again are they getting how much of the ethos is getting is getting poured into them you know police academy training gives you the bare bones basics that's it and then over the years how much training are you getting Yes, uh, Virginia requires that you have 40 hours of what we call in-service training every two years, and that's every two years, 40 hours. If you look at, um, say, Tier 1 Special Operators, you know, they'll train 18 months for a six-month deployment. Mm. So are we training? Now, I'm not saying that police should be uh, Green Berets or... uh, Marsoc Marines or anything like that. I won't mention any of the other names. I don't want them coming after me. But um, <laughs> I mean, they're listening. Yeah, I know. I'm sure. Spetnaz. No, that's Russian. But um, anyhow, as soon as we said the word czar, the Russians were listening. Yeah. <laughs> but but no, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, are we allowing are, are we allowing officers enough time to become competent in their skills because skill competency allows them to walk into really bad situations and understand that, Hey, I've got this. I have the mental acuity. I have the physical skill. And here's the key, the affinity for my community that I love my community enough that I'm willing to sit here and take a little bit of stuff, let things calm down, knowing that if it escalates, I'm not going to be the one to escalate it. There may come a point that it, it becomes an arrest time, but I'm not escalating mm. because I know that I can handle it. And if that person decides to do something, I'm prepared and confident in my abilities. So it, I think there needs to be training that, in regards to all those things so that when they walk in a room, they're ready to go. But the, the thing that, you know, Jesse, it's just really hard to teach people to love other people. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's the, 
that's the key. That's the key. I mean, even thinking about what we do here in, in apprenticeship, like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put a dude into the pastorate after, after only a year, 23 weeks and 40 hours. Yeah. And no, no, and, tw- and, 23 weeks and then at least eight more weeks of field okay. training. Yeah. And, and you know, we're not, we're not training. Shoot, you did three years and I still, I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> jury's still out. But if, but, but if we're thinking about, you know, like, like you're saying, and this, this has an ethical, uh, th- that there's a large ethical component to this, this training. There's a, there's a huge amount of competency that has to be developed. I mean, I, I don't, I don't have a, a firm solution in my mind, but it, but it seems like, it seems like this this ought to be something that is it's it's a profession that that ought to be caught and 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 learned from men men and women who do it really well uh and and almost have have men and women apprentice uh to learn what is it what does it look like to mm. really care for your community what does it look like to really um, love the people and have an affinity for the people that you're serving. What does it look like to, uh, I, I, I can't imagine taking a bunch of grief as an, as like an 18 or 19 year old man, uh, while I'm, while I'm like trying to do something good and then not like, I I just, I just would have handled that really badly. Well, well, you're at least 21 in Virginia to be a a police officer. So that, you got to be able to drink. <laughs> <laughs> so that should help. But, but you know, we all know that the longer the good Lord leaves us on the earth, hopefully the more wise we become, right? right? So I do think what you're talking about, about mentorships and all of that, I, I, I think there's room for that. But I also understand that, man, manpower is so... Um, it's just so diminished in this field, and and yeah. quite frankly, who wants to be a police officer yeah. today? Yeah, yeah. Not, are you not an appealing vocation? Right yeah. Now. Are you are you going to get are you going to get the person who has that high ethical standard, whether they're a Christian or not? You know, I would, I mean, I would hope they'd be a Christian. I mean, that's my prayer. But I, but that they have that high ethical standard that they're going to treat people well and they're going to love their community and they're going to love their fellow man. They're going, they may hate the behavior. Right, but they're going to treat people with respect, and and they're going to, even though they may not love them, they're going to at least try. Yeah, you know, and I think that's, you know, that's the thing. This so. is why. Uh, well, by the way, two cheers for training. I mean, this is what we're all about with the Bonhoeffer House. As a matter <laughs> yeah. of fact, I think it was you, Don, and and if it wasn't you, I've been giving you credit for this well, for, I'm, for I'm, quite some I'm time. I'm taking it, but I think it was you that said to me that uh, that. When we are when we're faced with a pressure situation, we don't rise to the occasion. We Correct. we uh, we drop to the level of our training. Absolutely, and that's I did been, say that. And I have taken that to pastoral ministry and said, "Hey, this is why it's so important. Why training is so important because you can't just think, oh, well, when I get into a hard situation, I'll rise to the occasion because that's not the way that we work. That's yeah. not the way that we work. No, your brain short circuits, your heart rate gets <laughs> yeah, really, and you yeah. get, and you and really you re, you fall back on habit. You fall back on love. Whatever and, your whatever your muscle memory is. Yeah. and so and, and in fact, I would argue you can, in a sense, train people to love, but they have to be willing. And really what you're not doing is you're not training them to have love. You're training them to order their loves rightly. 
uh, which, they, which again, they have to be willing to do. But oftentimes what we found is that's hard to do in a short amount of time. This is, this is, this is what you were talking about, Michael, yeah, when you're yeah. talking about apprenticeship yeah, and, yeah. and, and what uh, Eugene Peterson has called in pastoral ministry, the long obedience in the same direction. Yeah. And so, uh, so, you know, this is why I think some of the conversations about policing and funding, uh, really, when we need to get past the conversation just being about whether or not and get into, well, where do the funds go? And I agree with that. Yeah. I, I think there's always room to look yeah. at that. And, and, and I would, like, if there's any law enforcement people that are looking, listening to this, don't get hurt that I said that. I mean, be honest. Look at, look at where your funding's going, and maybe funding gets redirected to a place that helps you better. Yeah, so. uh, training. Hiring the best kind of people that you can Absolutely. hire. Yeah. Yeah. Your salary goes up. Guess what? If, if you pay these people a little bit better, you might start attracting better people. Better applicants. But I don't know that that's accurate either. So hmm. and probably. Hey, what's something you <laughs> want to say to listeners who have serious doubt and fear about the police? Um, I'll, I'll, here's, I'll, I'll kind of just give you a little bit. I, I've spent my entire life trying to help people. And I've failed. I mean, I've failed plenty of times, but for not a lack of trying. And I would tell people that have fear of the police or they don't have confidence in their police to try to get to know them, that call up the police department, see if you can go for a ride along. Go try to learn about that part of your community. Become involved. I think the police would appreciate it, or at least I would, if I was the chief, I would appreciate it, and I hope others would too. Don't um, don't let your fear um, overrun your courage to do mm. to do good things, and and there there's just lots of ways. There's we we used to have a citizens police academy, and we took people from all different walks of life and let them come and. We'd kind of tell them and show them, and it kind of, you know, it's kind of like pulling the curtain back from the Wizard of Oz, and you get to see why things are, are the way they are. And things don't have to, if, if things need to change, certainly there needs to be some outside voice and community voice about, about that. So, so get involved, and, and also, um, my mama always said, you got a lot more flies with sugar than you did with vinegar. So <laughs> just, uh, I, I my mama wasn't a biblical woman, but she had lots of things like that. So, so be kind in, in, in how you do that and understand that they're fallen men and women that are trying to do the job. That's right. And, and, and kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. Absolutely. Right. I mean, we're not talking about, uh, you know, kind, the biblical kindness is a strong kindness. It's a kindness that stands up to injustice and evil, but it's nevertheless kindness and civility. And so, okay, fine, final question before we move into the lightning round is what hope do you have for the future of policing and our common life together. You're retired now. You're looking out into the future. Uh, a lot of us don't, and people may not be, may, people may be struggling with hope. Yeah, I, this is a weird season. I, yeah. think, I think sometimes, you know, just all that we have going on can, can sap your hope. But, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that I serve a, serve a God of hope and a God of grace, and a God who restores. So as I look out into the future, I would want God to restore, especially in these torn neighborhoods, that, that he would restore those neighborhoods, that he would build relationships in those neighborhoods that led to safety and flourishing and shalom. And I would look, you know, like, like I mentioned my granddaughter Myers, who's, you know, um, pretty cool. 
and, and but you know she's only two and a half and you know what do I want the world to look like for her I, I want it I want it to look I want I want there to be a greater sense of justice across the community where people are striving to help people mm. uh, not just police officers but the community and as a whole and 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 so maybe maybe what I'm saying here I'm kind of rambling I apologize but maybe what I'm saying here is that we've we've taken we've taken policing and we've said here are all of society's ills all of them fix it oh by the way no more funding no more people no no more resource no more oh and we're going to you know just be mean to you all the time if you do, if we don't like what you do and, and what what I would hope is as a society we would kind of get past that vitriol and that division and that 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 we could not stop we could stop looking at hey I'm right and you're wrong and maybe try to look at the common things that we have the people that I that in the community that I know man we have so much in common we all want our children healthy we all want a safe community there's there's just no doubt about that and uh you know, I would just hope that, that people would work together and, you know, that, that God would first and foremost start working in the people in these fractured communities that you see every day on TV where, where things are burning and people are in pain. That's just, you know, that, that, there, that he would raise up people that could help in those situations. Good, good. Thank you, Don. And, wow, thanks for engaging in a really complex yeah. and challenging topic and time in our nation yeah we may we maybe didn't uh didn't give any more answers <laughs> maybe just raised questions well, but well i think we it's do really I, I do think it's a time to ask questions yeah you yeah. know that's where we are right now yeah didn't do a lot of answers we got a lot of answers or as some people would say <laughs> responses <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah hey lightning round let's get rolling here oh Hey, what is if you if you had to choose a meal between pizza, tacos, and hamburgers, what would you choose? <laughs> Whoa, tacos! Tacos. That's yeah. That's the right answer. It's the winning. It's the winning answer. It's the so winning far. answer. You know, you have a house in Floyd, Virginia, so maybe we should make this about what is your favorite uh, hard uh, brown liquor? Uh, are we are we talking about moonshine, bourbon? Are you do you feel comfortable answering this question? <laughs> uh, we do have a lot of Baptists listening. I'm partial to Buffalo Trace. Mm. Best book about policing? On Killing by Dave Grossman. On Killing by Dave. We'll list that in the show notes. What about a best book about public service in general? Maybe common good, uh, societal good, working together. What's a good book you'd recommend? The Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Man. He got us, Michael. <laughs> Jesus juke. <laughs> he got us. <laughs> hey, well, let's keep it in the book theme here. What's the book you've given away most as a gift other than the Bible, which obviously would be your answer? Uh, it's a fly fishing book called, um, oh, it's uh, Fly Fishing Virginia Streams, I think. I've given, I don't know, five or six of those away to people. Great. Thank you. You gave me one as well. <laughs> did I really? You did, yes. Well, Well, to be fair... I'm not sure if you gave it to me, but I ended up it. with it. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I'd like to say thank you right now. Oh, claim it a gift. Yeah. What's something under $100 that every police officer should own? A, a good LED flashlight. Do you have one that you'd recommend, like a certain brand? You don't have to. No, I mean... It's a good one. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, make sure it has a good waterproof aluminum body and it uses batteries that last a long time. And carry it with you all the time, even when you're working day shift, especially when you're working day shift. You'll have it when you're working night shift. Huh. Good, good. Waterproof LED flashlight with good batteries. Yeah. What's the worst advice you regularly hear given to young police officers or public servants? Go to the convenience store and get a hot dog. (laughs) No, that's a bad joke. Um, Uh, That's where you get your favorite coffee, right? uh, I do. I do like convenience store coffee. I know it's an acquired taste. I know you coffee snobs or whatever. (laughs) Yes, we've got a fantastic coffee shop in Radford. Speaking of sponsorship, I'd like to just go ahead and highlight (laughs) Radford Coffee Company. Yeah, tremendous coffee shop, great coffee, and Don probably still prefers Seven Eleven. No, I like. Oh, you've come along. I like RCC very, very well. In fact, I saw you there today. Anyhow, um, I don't know if it's the worst advice, but how about I give some advice? Can I do that? Yeah. You know what? As a matter of fact, let's go ahead and move on to our final question. What advice do you have for an aspiring young police officer? Understand that whether or not you believe it, your job is a calling, that you're serving a sovereign God, whether you believe in him or not, you are. And that uh, sometimes what you do, well, basically everything that you do impacts people's lives. So try to make sure you do it in a positive way. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Don Goodman for joining us from our mobile studio set up at Valley Bible Church here in beautiful, beautiful Radford, Virginia. An upgrade over our neighbor Blacksburg. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> You're doing it. You're just I'm embracing, gonna cut that out. You're embracing the Pawnee role. <laughs> Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the Hammer and Quill episode 17, an interview with Don Goodman. Now, next up on the podcast, we have my old friend, and author Shelby Abbott, who's going to be writing about or talking about his newest book, and uh, you know, I don't know, whatever else we want to ask him about. So, uh, tune in next time as we interview Shelby Abbott. Please subscribe, review us on iTunes, throw some five star reviews our way. Until next time, peace. peace.